Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Ozzy Osbourne. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Concurrently with the Dio story is the post-Sabbath Aussie story. So if you think about it, you have Sharon Osbourne to thank for the Dio Sabbath and to thank for Ozzy's solo career. Because after Ozzy was let go from Sabbath for the second time, he holed up in the Troubadour Hotel, I believe, and basically stayed drunk and high the whole time, eating pizza, God knows what else. But Sharon went to see him to get him to sign some papers. Her father, Don Arden, was Sabbath's manager, and he needed whatever he needed. So she goes there, and she sees him in the condition she's at, and she literally yells at him, makes him go take a shower, she straightens up the room and tries to tell him he needs to have some dignity. I was just in a state of shock because I thought, what am I going to fucking do? Back, back to the unemployment line for me. I had not, until my wife came into my life and said, I want to, if you clean your fucking act up and get rid of all these pizza fucking boxes and these empty bottles and these fucking cocaine wrappers and all these paraphernalia, I just locked the door and locked the window. I never went out for six months. And somewhere between that and the next little while, she became his manager, and then she became his lover and his wife. But taking Ozzy on as a special project is a little difficult when you understand the man's history of self-abuse. You write in the book, over the past 40 years I've been loaded on booze, coke, acid, quaaludes, glue, cough syrup, heroin, rohypnol, clonopin, Vicodin, and too many other heavy-duty substances to list. How are you alive? I don't know, it's a miracle. Miracles do happen, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the miracle is that I was able to stop. He wasn't some prodigious talent that could play an instrument, even. He didn't have this incredibly compelling, versatile voice. He was Ozzy Osbourne of Black Sabbath, and that's all he knew how to do. But really, Sharon dragged his ass along to try to get his life and his career back. Sharon started putting a band together, and... Only when Randy Rhodes came into the situation did Ozzy perk up enough to take interest. It was the first time where he could see a possible future.
Obviously, most people know who Randy Rhodes was, but there's a rather big story behind Ozzy's solo career, which was, at the very beginning of it, Ozzy was not necessarily meant to be a solo artist. He was going to put together a new band called Blizzard of Oz that he was going to front. There's even t-shirts of this. In addition to Randy Rhodes, the other members of the band were Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake. Now, Lee Kerslake came in a little later, but he was the original drummer on the first album, and he didn't get credit for a long while. Even on the album cover and the photos, they made it look like Tom Tommy Aldridge was the drummer. Here's what's interesting. You mentioned you call it a band, and of course yeah. it was a band. Yeah. But I've I've talked to Daisley and I've talked to Jakey Lee. I've talked to uh, to some of the guys around at that time, and that is a big, especially for Bob, was a big point of contention in those early years. Is that it was sold to him as the ba- as a band, Blizzard yeah. of Oz, and it very quickly changed to Ozzy and a bunch of backing guys. So that was something that, that never quite sat right with him because he felt it was a bit of a bait-and-switch, and it wasn't really a band. Bob Daisley has woven himself in and out of Ozzy and Sabbath's career that it's impossible to underestimate how important he was, particularly to Ozzy. And Bob Daisley had played with Dio and Rainbow for a little while. It's very incestuous kind of things with all these bands. So you had Bob Daisley come in, who is a seasoned pro. He thinks he is in a band called Blizzard of Oz, and he's contributing majorly to the first couple of albums. So he played bass, did backing vocals, wrote most of the songs, and co-produced the first album. He wrote most of the second album, Diary of a Madman. So really, the primary forces in Blizzard of Oz were Bob Daisley and Randy Rhodes. Mr. Crowley! Strangely, the first song written for Ozzy's first solo album, Blizzard of Oz, was Goodbye to Romance, which is one of the odder tracks he's recorded. So even Randy Rhodes apparently felt that he and Bob Daisley were not getting the credit that they were due, and that they were contributing most of the work. He didn't want to be in a backing band for someone who was just going to stand out there and do tracks that he worked hard on. Lee Kerslake has said recently that Randy almost left the band in 1981. He was so tired of their shit. But he stayed on even while Lee Kerslake and Bob Daisley were let go, Sharon just not wanting to share the wealth. In my opinion, Randy Rhodes would have been gone not long after he died anyway. And I say anyway, not lightly. He seemed like a really nice guy. I've, I've never heard anything bad about him. But he did sleep with Sharon, according to her anyway. And God knows, I would probably rather be in a plane crash than that.
So to show you the kind of person Sharon Osborne is, she got into a spat with giving proper credit to Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake and actually hired Robert Triello and Mike Borden to come in and re-record their parts. So when you bought those albums back then on CD, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman, the first two records, the bass and drum parts have been replaced. And you could tell. So Daisley and Kerslake, I think, went to court over it and lost. However, the court of public opinion intervened and those versions have gone out of print and Ozzy's only versions of those albums feature the original players and the original recordings. And then Ozzy came out publicly and said, whatever the circumstances were, I want the original tracks, which I'm sure he was also told to say, blaming it all on Sharon. And they even replaced the backing vocals with some people they hired. Just really dopey and pretty indicative of how things went throughout Ozzy's career with Sharon on board. Now, no doubt he wouldn't have got anywhere without her. I mean, she's a shrewd business person. She knows what sells, but she doesn't have any integrity as far as what looks best for the artist or what should be done on behalf of the artist. Still, I'm not taking anything away from her. I, being a woman in that field and playing these high stakes, kind of going someplace nobody had been, and having your artist be a drug addict and alcoholic probably is fairly difficult, especially when it's been said, and he has not disagreed, that he had been physically abusive to her. Diary of a man. There's a famous story that he came to her one night in a drunken blackout and grabbed her by her neck and said, we've decided you must go. But I can't imagine she would um, sit there for abuse when she's beating the shit out of people publicly. I believe it was the singer of the band Fear Factory. She threw him down a flight of stairs. She attacked Iron Maiden's lead singer on stage with a barrage of eggs. I saw her on TV grab this girl by the hair and punch her in the face after having doused her with a glass of wine for looking at of the wrong way. There's a story in her autobiography about how she went to a hospital to settle a financial deal with her father, whom she had had a falling out with, and threw his money into the fountain in front of the hospital while he was in a hospital gown, jumping into the water with an IV attached to his arm, trying to save all his money. That's from her autobiography. And then there was this big problem with the song Suicide Solution off the first album. There was a kid who committed suicide, allegedly after listening to the song, and his parents and and lawyers sued Ozzy and tried to say that somehow, some way, and for some reason, Ozzy Osbourne would be smart enough to have planted subliminal messages which made his biggest fans kill themselves. I don't think I have much to add to that. How fucking stupid. <laughs>
Now, jumping back to Black Sabbath, which is really only a band and name at this point, they had started doing auditions. One of the people included in the audition was a young Michael Bolton. Michael Bolton. But eventually, Ian Gillian from Deep Purple got the job. They recorded Born Again. It was not even supposed to be called Black Sabbath, but the record company insisted on it. And again, Tony, Geezer, and Bill Ward, who is back, took on a lead singer, Ian Gillian. And again, Bill Ward had to punt in the middle of the tour and was replaced by Bev Bevan. So now Black Sabbath consisted of two original members, a guy from Deep Purple, and a guy from Electric Light Orchestra. They were still being managed by Don Arden, Sharon's dad, and he was at war with his daughter because he was pissed off that she was managing one of his old artists and took him somewhere, and that was money that he couldn't make, I assume. So he really got into the idea of this competition. You have Ozzy, firstly, who always had a competition with Sabbath because he felt like a loser and he felt betrayed, and Tony had been a bully to him almost his whole life, even going back to when they were teenagers. Then you have Sharon. Regardless of her personal aspirations or drive to be a business person, she's protecting her husband from what he and she feel are people that cause him pain. And those people happen to be managed by her own father, who is a brutal psychopath. So there was a heated competition going on. Of course, the core Sabbath group were wanting to prove, again, that they could replace Ozzy and Dio now. They didn't want Ozzy's solo career to to be bigger than they were, so they wanted to make a big statement now that they were back with Gillian.
Don Arden came up with this idea of having a giant stage set, something incredibly impressive, as soon as the kids walked in the hall. And it was going to be a reproduction of Stonehenge. Don't stop me if you've heard this before, because the real story from Spinal Tap comes from this event, where Don Arden wrote out the dimensions and gave them to a tour manager. The tour manager wrote it down in meters instead of feet. The people who created it saw 15 meters instead of 15 feet. Use Google. It was 45 feet high and couldn't fit on any stage in America, so they had to leave it in the storage area. Another story is about Ian Gillian not remembering words and apparently not taking too much effort to remember the words for live shows, and so he had a notebook with the lyrics in it, and he would put it down by the microphone stand, forgetting that the stage was going to be engulfed in dry ice smoke. And there's video of him singing and then having to wave away the smoke to read the lyrics. He also used to play bongos on stage occasionally, Black Sabbath with bongos, and would play some of the original Black Sabbath tracks, singing a line or two and then kind of wailing through the rest of it. And yet the album that came out of this, Born Again, in 1983 is not the worst thing in the world. It is mixed worse than anything in the world. And the cover, the cover is probably the first time I went to a record store with one of my favorite bands and picked up the album and laughed. And I was like, is this a fucking joke? I like actually took the record up to the front of Peach's Records. There was an employee sitting there. I'm like, can you believe this fucking shit? And we both burst out laughing and sat there and talked about how stupid Black Sabbath was for probably 45 minutes. I did not buy the records. I did not buy the record. Not then, anyway. I am a completist and a Sabbath fan, so I did pay for it eventually. <clears throat> and I admit that it's in my record collection. But all I have in my record collection from Sabbath are the original Sabbath albums, the original lineup, the Dio albums, and the One Gillian album. Anything else... I, I've tried. There's nothing of any value out there. So this was a one-and-done record. Geezer quits, and then Tony rolls through 25 members of Black Sabbath over the years. And even Jim Steinman, who produced Meatloaf, was involved in the band at some point. One thing that flew under the radar in 1985 was that the original Black Sabbath played at Live Aid. It was really weird. It was like 10.30 in the morning. Ozzy's dressed like Ozzy would back then, which means he was sort of like a nouveau riche, middle-aged woman with a giant perm and some sort of bizarre pantsuit with a frilly blouse and rhinestones. And so everybody, myself included, thought, oh, that's it, they're going to get back together. But they didn't. Apparently, they didn't even talk to each other. They went, on the, went to the front of the stage, and the bands all exchanged legal documents that they were suing each other, and then got up and played Children of the Grave and Paranoid. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Black Sabbath featuring So let me just skim through some of this in case you are interested. Uh, the first non-Aussie, non-Dio, non-Gillian album was called Seventh Star, and it was supposed to be 
a Tony Iommi solo album and didn't make it. It has a really cool cover. That's about all you can say about it. Scratch that. Then came The Eternal Idol, which had a great album cover and nothing else. Then there was Headless Cross and Tear. And that is when, I, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Tear, T-Y-R. That's when you would see videos and you would just it would just be shameful. It would be like seeing your uncle, who you used to think is the greatest guy in the world, beating a baby seal at the mall. It was terrible. And poor Tony Martin, who was the singer on a lot of this stuff, oh man, he was a poor man's version of Ronnie Dio. Not a terribly good-looking guy, and has been treated as a doormat by Sabbath, because every single time any one of them quits, they bring Tony Martin back in. He's just like, he's like the easy girlfriend that you have, like you break up, and then you get somebody else, and then you break up with her, so you call the easy girlfriend back, and then you go with somebody else, and then you call the easy girlfriend back. Tony Martin was basically Black Sabbath's booty call. Whenever one of the A-listers quit, they'd call Tony Martin and he would come back and act like nothing ever happened. Carry on as before. I actually saw that era of Sabbath in Maine in freezing cold rain with Motorhead opening. And it was not a good look for any of the bands. The only thing I can say about it, really, is that I wish it had been warmer in the building and that Lemmy seemed like a really nice guy at the bar and I didn't bug him too much. And Tony Iommi was nowhere in sight. Like, as soon as he got off the stage, there were people there to make sure nobody fucked with Tony. Apparently Tony's not a big guy to go and talk with the fans. Now Tony Martin was, but who wants to talk to Tony Martin? Welcome to the Black Sabbath Tour of 1994! We have a new album out right now called Cross Purposes. That's what this is all about. You know this one? Right. Black Sabbath, the new album Cross Purposes, on tour now. Probably the weirdest thing in all of this is the album Forbidden. Tony Martin sang on it, but you should see the artwork. It looks like something out of Cracked Magazine. And Eddie from Body Count produced the record. That's right, Ice-T and Body Count were in the studio with Black Sabbath. Ice-T even kind of did a vocal spoken word thing. 
It's an abortion. get to see the original Black Sabbath. I'll never get to see the real Black Sabbath. And somehow it happened and it happened and it happened and it happened and it happened. I saw them like five times. They like toured for a very long period in there just pretty relentlessly. And they came through North Carolina four or five times. I went to Virginia once, I think. But this was awesome. And then they had their little break while they were doing the heaven and hell thing, which was awesome. And then Sabbath got back together for the final tour and the 13 album, which is not horrible. But as of now, Black Sabbath says they are done. It is over. They've done the final tour, the final show in Birmingham, and they've disbanded, and that's it. I kind of believe them. Kind of.
Here's a fun fact. There's a band called Coven. In 1969, this psychedelic band released their debut album called Witchcraft Destroys Minds and Reaps Souls. The photo on the back cover shows two members of the band with their fingers forming the famous devil horns that's now intrinsically associated with rock music. The first song on side A of the album is titled Black Sabbath. Also, Coven's bass player, his name was Oz Osborne. No relation, nothing. Just coincidental that Coven had an album out with a song called Black Sabbath and their bass player's name was Oz Osborne. There. Aren't you glad you listen to this fucking podcast? the big winner in all of this is Ozzy, hands down, despite everything, despite succumbing to a bad 80s period. Crazy, hey, but that's how it goes. Millions of people live an asshole. The Osbournes TV show, he's still loved by millions, including me. I know I tell these stories and I might sound like I'm not a fan, but I'm, I'm a huge fan. I love Ozzy. Yet he's also one of Rock's most tricky characters. Totally loved, but partly due to his management, it's a little sticky when it comes to integrity. For example, during one tour, he had a guy named Robert Mason ghosting his vocals from beneath the stage. Robert Mason was on tour as Osbourne as a backing man-behind-the-curtain singer. Yes. The Osmosis Tour? That even now gets laughs out in your audience here. There is somebody the, chuckled at it. I don't know why that's funny. Because <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think it's much better. I've said this many, many times. Ma'am, stop laughing. If you need help. Oz and Sharon decided that in order to not use any, like you said, anything canned or pre-recorded. Now, this is 95. So remember sampling and everything wasn't technology what it was. Technology may not even yeah. been there. So by the time I got in the band... Sharon calls and says, look, he really wants you to sing live vocals because we knew some of the same people in common. So the next call was to my house, and she said, look, we're going to be gone for a year. You know, it's this whole world tour. Will you come and do it? And, you know, come on, when am I not going to do that? Yes. He's almost certainly lip-syncing shows on his latest tour, and he has falsely attributed some songwriting efforts to himself, which he had nothing to do with. He's had some sketchy legal shenanigans through the years with past bandmates getting paid. But yeah, he still has a mountain of classic songs that no one else could have brokered. And this all comes from a guy who has maybe a 10th grade education.
his own father just thought if he doesn't somehow make it, he's just going to be a bum. He's going to end up in jail. A guy who kind of half-assed was a, a burglar. And I believe I'd read that he might have dyslexia. But he came from a really poor background. The guys in Sabbath really came from nothing. And all he ever wanted in life was to be a rock star. He just loved the Beatles so much. It's kind of funny that, you know, ultimately he got to meet Paul McCartney and all this, and he was still starstruck. There are places I remember all my life. I mean, just think at how many turns this guy came back, how many lives this cat has. When he left Black Sabbath, they gave him a lump sum of money. It was like $90,000 or something like that, and which was a huge amount of money back then. But he had to give up his part of the name. He would eventually get that back. When he left, Don Arden was still hoping that somehow he would come back to the band. And then he even told Ozzy he should name his new band Son of Sabbath, which, as fucked up as Ozzy was, he knew that was a dumb move. When Sharon stepped in, she wanted him to form like a supergroup and get name people. And one of those was Gary Moore, who had been with UFO and with Thin Lizzy. Gary Moore liked Ozzy and kind of pitied him somewhat, but he wasn't nuts. So he wouldn't have anything to do with it, but he did help him try out several other musicians, one of which was Randy Rhodes, who showed up looking all glam for the rehearsal, and Ozzy thought, I don't know, and he questioned his sexuality. So when all the pieces finally got in place, he had a really tight killer band, of course featuring Randy Rhodes, who I discussed, and they had a really tight partnership, and Ozzy was able to do something with Randy that he had done in Sabbath, which is he was afforded the ability to hum melodies to get lyrics from and to basically do his thing in a way that probably no band on earth would be patient enough for. See, Ozzy didn't write lyrics, but if you gave him lyrics and you played music, he was pretty good at singing those lyrics to the music, so he would come up with vocal melodies. So, of course, the Blizzard of Oz band got off to a pretty good start. Um, Two albums right in the can, boom, boom. They were getting ready to play Madison Square Garden in 1982, and they had a tour bus driver. And as they were driving through Florida, he made an unannounced stop at an airplane hangar where he had a plane, and he wanted to show off the plane and and, uh, offer to take the the band up to fly around. Apparently, they, they did fly up once, came back down and landed, and then I think Ozzy and Sharon went back on the bus, and when they went back up the second time, the pilot thought it would be funny to buzz the bus, and he got a little too close and clipped the bus with the wing, and that's the end of Randy Rhodes, also the hairstylist and the pilot. So Ozzy goes into this deep depression. He thinks, surely it's over now. Again, Sharon grabs him by the hair and pulls him back out on the road within two weeks. And they had to do it. They had financial obligations. I mean, it it must have been unbelievable, but the first person they pull in was a guy named Bernie Torme. And Bernie Torme was just... The fastest, quickest person they could they could find. Um, unfortunately, fans didn't like him very much because he didn't have that shredding ability that Randy Rhodes had. Bernie Torme was mostly old school bluesish bass guitar player. Then Brad Gillis from the band Night Ranger comes on board. He didn't last very long, but he was a part of the live album Speak of the Devil, which I think is a great, great live album. He was also able to play somewhat like. Randy Rhodes, but he left himself because he didn't think there were enough chicks in the audience, so he went on back to Sister Christian Land. So on the next album, Bark at the Moon, that's where they lost me. I really didn't like the production on it, and Jakey Lee, who came on as the new guitar player, to me just sounded like a bad facsimile of Randy Rhodes. Something about his tone just just wasn't the edge there that the previous albums had. 
And then Bark at the Moon was followed by The Ultimate Sin, which really is the ultimate sin musically. One of the worst albums, I, I think all the worst cliches of, of hair metal imaginable. And at this point, Ozzy's just looking ridiculous in the clothing he's wearing. And I don't know, he looked more like Sharon than Sharon did. All this time, Ozzy's battling, you know, chemical dependencies, alcoholism. He's doing his best to stay sober, and he's just failing miserably. Are you sober now? No, no, yeah. For a couple of years there, off and on, Geezer Butler from Sabbath played bass with his band. My interest in Ozzy peaked back a little bit again in 1988, um, when he and Lita Ford did the song Close My Eyes Forever. Compared to the power ballads and this kind of thing that most of these bands had, this was a great song, because Ozzy wasn't really going to write a love song. His ideas of ballads were usually just slowed down Aussie songs. Like the song So Tired sounds really tired. It sounds like tired ELO. I guess you could say Mama, I'm Coming Home is one. That's a really excellent song. Written by Lemmy, as I mentioned in the last Black Sabbath podcast. Times have changed and times are strange. Here I come, but I ain't the same. Mama, I'm coming home Time's gone by 
Sharon put together OzFest, which was a showcase for Ozzy, but also other bands who, from what I've heard, had to pay to get on the bill. I don't know that any of these bands actually made money from these shows. They just got the publicity and the album sales, which at that point mattered. I saw a couple of OzFests, and they were awesome. I saw Slayer, System of a Down, Rob Zombie, Tool, Limp Bizkit. Ozzy Osbourne, ikona roka, książę ciemności. We własnej osobie wykona najnowsze hity ze swojego ostatniego albumu Scream oraz największe przeboje ze swojej legendarnej kariery. 9 sierpnia, Ergo Arena, Gdańsk, Sopot. But Ozfest was so successful that Ozzy was even outselling merchandise with Kiss. Some lucky people got to see an Ozfest where Ozzy performed solo and with Black Sabbath. I would have loved to have seen that. The one I saw with my friend Michael was Ozzy Solo, and it was great. It was fantastic. Jason Newstead was going to be joining Ozzy in the band, and I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but he got in and he didn't have any control, and he was told everything to do, and he was like, fuck, this is worse than Metallica. I don't think anything got recorded with him. So Ozzy Osbourne's always been a household name. The funniest thing is, he's a household name in my household. My mom told me once that she loved Ozzy. Now this is years ago, and I don't think she remembers it's the same Ozzy Osbourne who I used to blast in ninth grade. He was known for biting the heads off of bats and birds and bees. The famous story being how Ozzy had bit the head off of a bird at a record company meeting. And there's photos of it. The backstory is that one of the birds was already dead and in his pocket. See, this is the kind of shifty, manipulative, brilliant stuff that Ozzy and Sharon did. For years and years and years, that story went out as if he hadn't had that planned the whole time. Biting the head off the bat apparently was not planned. Somebody threw a live bat on stage. How they got it in a gig, I don't know. Ozzy picked it up, think it was a toy, bit the head off of it. I guess the bat bit his tongue or something, and he had to get rabies shots. Imagine how much cooler the Osbournes TV show would have been if it occurred during that time, and we got to see all that shit on tape. And then, and then his bat, he bit my tongue, and they gave me a shot in the ass. 
thing about Ozzy is he's made a lot of big hit recordings. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, Black Skies, and Bloodbath in Paradise. Ozzy, mom loves your stuff. So one of the episodes could open up in 1981 when Ozzy goes to Germany to meet a record executive there. He gets drunk, does a goose step up and down a table in the conference room, performing a strip tease all along, and then pissing on everybody and dipping his balls into their wine. Or in 1982, where he puts on Sharon's dress and goes out and pisses on the Alamo. The Texans are very touchy about the Alamo. You don't just go piss on it. Or the time he was on this long drinking binge and he fired his entire band, including Randy Rhodes, because he said they didn't want to do a whole album of Black Sabbath covers that he had planned. And he had physically attacked them. He ended up in jail the next day. He didn't remember any of it. The tour went on. And that's how it's been with Ozzy for 50 years. The show goes on. It doesn't matter if he's got arrested. It doesn't matter if he's got dead bandmates. It doesn't matter if he goes to jail. The next day, he gets up, puts on his boots, and he's back out on the road, just like he is right now. He continues to go, even as we speak. All you can say is, God bless him. After being with Black Sabbath for all those years, of being just a singer with a band, now I've got my own thing going. It was, it was great, you know, because I, I felt like I, I did, could do something, you know. It was a lot. It was a lot of fun back then. It was. A lot, a lot, it still is now. But I mean, way back then, it was. It was great. You know. I mean, it was the beginning of Vazi, You know.
This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck. <laughs>